Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with John Bowman, who is the president of the Chartered Alternative Investment Analyst Association, or CAIA. John, welcome to the podcast. Walter, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, My only regret, as you know, is that we didn't do this in person, which we had originally scheduled in sunny Sydney. So I'm in cold Utah in the States instead of summertime. But uh, nonetheless, it's, uh, it's, it's great to be here in studio. Yes, well, it's drizzling today, so you wouldn't have gotten many sun anyway. But um, <laughs> yes, next time we'll do this, we'll do it in person. I looked a bit into your background, and you've got an interesting sort of background because um, you started out um, in the investment industry. Um, you were a portfolio manager managing money. And then you got to in uh, sort of the educational space with um, the CFA Institute, 13 years, I think, at the CFA Institute. And then 2019, you joined Kaya. Is there a bit of a teacher in you? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. I, I uh, Any of my academic friends would shudder at the question that I've got capabilities to teach. But let's just say there's a there's a mission, best practice, leave this industry in a better place than it started. I think DNA in me that has, I think, uh, threaded through both my practitioner uh, chapter as well as uh, my time with professional bodies like CFA Institute and now Kaya. You know, I... It, Every career, as you know, Walter, is is a bit of a combination of hard work and then in the right place at the right time. And those things tend to be a bit codependent at times. And and my my SSGA, State Street Global Advisors time, was very illustrative of that. I joined kind of a sleepy old trust bank deep within State Street Bank. And I learned from some of these Boston-based wealth managers that had small books of high net worth individuals. And suddenly the folks across the street, literally and figuratively, that were on the institutional side, SSGA, looked at these trust commingled funds on things like large cap US equity, small cap US equity, uh, international EFA mandates. And they said, wow, this is amazing uh, performance. And we've got a real story here. Why don't we repackage these and institutionalize these over here on the institutional side, create mutual funds, some separately managed accounts. And why don't we kind of lift out obviously just within two division of the same organization, uh, these strategies and and kind of create a new identity. And so I suddenly was kind of at, at a very young age and completely clueless and naive, whipped into the non-US international equity strategy uh, at SSGA and kind of the rest is history. So it was it was a really great time. Late 90s, of course, things were really cooking. So I had a tailwind of capital market uh, returns that were helping me out too. 
Yeah, yeah. That must have been quite a, a steep learning curve uh, for you, then. It was indeed, but I, I was really blessed with some great leaders and uh, learned a ton about product development and the whole value chain of the industry and how to think through client first mentality. So it was just it was it was trial by fire. You're absolutely right in that, but uh, I learned a ton in the in that eight years or so I was in uh, Boston. Yeah, yeah, very exciting. So how do you switch then from an investment role to more of an educational role and an industry, you know, prom uh, promoting role? You know, the, the industry itself always inspires me. And so I, I, I really, really loved, as I hope you could hear in uh, the passion of my voice, my time with SSGA and, and then with Boston Company uh, at Mellon. Um, there was an element of me that I felt like there was a broader tapestry to kind of operate within, um, a an opportunity to lead and challenge and poke and prod and, and reform. And at look at 29 or 30, when this started happening, I wouldn't have articulated it that clearly, but there was something inside me that kind of wanted a, a more powerful and maybe agnostic or unbiased platform to try to help clients and to try to better the greater good of the industry. And so CFA Institute just felt like a really good opportunity with a, a very solid, you know, great reputational platform uh, to kind of be... Um, a change agent. And it was a door opener because suddenly my business card did not have any agenda or bias or angle. There was no jaded nature of my inquiries. It was just to help out. And so whether it was an asset owner or an asset manager or an intermediary consultant, people wanted to talk to me. They were happy to talk to me because I wasn't selling them anything for once. And that's really been the story and, and what really excites me about my work at CFA and now at Kaya is that uh, when you're a neutral white hat player, really just trying to do good for everyone, even though we may not agree all the time on every issue, there's a tendency to be able to convene. And we'll talk about that a little bit uh, with my work at Kaya. But the convening power uh, and the invitation of that network is sometimes very, um, I would say, contagious and exciting. Yeah, yeah. Have you always been interested in sort of the bigger concepts behind in, in investing in the asset management industry? Are you like somebody who has a, a bookshelf full of the history of the stock markets? Uh, well, I, I have a real interest and I'm so intrigued by the power and influence of capital allocation generally to solve a lot of the world's problems. And I think finally in the last couple of decades, the, the, the broader world and uh, government and regulators are waking up to the fact that, uh, you know, capital really speaks and can change things. And so that's what's really exciting to me is that starting at the top of that value chain down from asset owners down, uh, there's the real ability to really make a difference in the world. And so at each stop on that waypoint down the value chain, uh, I think there's opportunities to ensure that it's aligned and geared towards the ultimate client and the ultimate mission, the ultimate investment outcomes. And that's that's what I love because I, I feel like Kaya is right at the center of each of those conversations. Yeah. So the CFA Institute is is more of a, a broader overview over the investment industry with all covers all asset classes. But Kaya specifically alternative investments. Um, how did you get involved with that? Yeah. So CFA and Kaya have been friends and kind of what you might say on the same side of the battlefield for a long, long time. Kaya has been in existence a little over 20 years and CFA has had a much longer 75-80 year history of of doing really good work and trying to professionalize the industry. Uh I was I often found myself literally and figuratively on the same stage 
as a lot of the Kaya executives, uh, we would collaborate and on standards, on opinion pieces, uh, on regulatory advocacy. And so I got to know, in this case, Bill Kelly, the CEO at Kaya, very well, personally and professionally. We both have very large families, so we started to really enjoy uh, getting to know each other's uh, kids and um, and you know eventually we kind of looked each other in the eye and said, you know, what if we just kind of did this together? Um, and what a one-two punch we might be because Bill's been an amazing mentor. I've learned a ton from him, but he'd be the first one to also say like, we are, we're very different in the sense that we bring different competency sets, I think intuition and skill sets to the table. And therefore we have tremendous, I think, benefit and uncorrelated skills in working with each other that has really benefited, I think, both of us. So it's just been a lot of fun. And I guess the other thing I would say is just from a timing perspective, Wouter, obviously I saw the waves moving towards and the tide moving towards alternative investments and greater diversification and away from the conventional space that at least historically CFA has operated in. And while I think the world of them, it was just much more inspiring to be on the side of the future uh, and to be kind of getting my hands dirty with what is on the hearts and minds of today's investment professional. Yeah, let's dig into that a little bit because um, alternative investments can be quite a broad church. Um, how do you define alternatives? Is it you know purely more the hedge fund type of stuff? Or do you, do you also include like the real estate and the infrastructure? What what is your definition of alternative? Well, it's a funny you ask this because it's it's. Uh, it's a word, ironically, that Kaya has been in existence to effectively make extinct. And I know that sounds odd coming from an organization that has alternative in its word. But for 22 years, we've been in the business of trying to bring the, quote, alternative to mainstream, right? That's why we eventually stood ourselves up is that asset allocators and asset owners were struggling with how to work in some of these idiosyncratic, uncorrelated risk premia into what was largely a 60-40 portfolio. So what do you do with all this new stuff? To answer your question, the easiest way to think about it is traditionally the conventional uh, asset classes like public equity, public fixed income, and cash would traditionally be called you know, the conventional side of the ledger. And then anything outside of that, and yes, that would be that would be certainly unconstrained equity strategies that we call hedge funds in all flavors, styles, and types. It would be private capital in all flavors and types. So the entire stratification of private equity from buyout down through venture, real estate, certainly private debt, which has grown from nothing to a $1.5 trillion asset class in its own right, and natural resources. And so that would be the taxonomy uh, that we would kind of put our uh, put our guardrails around to say is still alternatives. But again, I I think where the industry still struggles and maybe does a disservice to the underlying client is still kind of thinking of this as this catch-all third bucket. You know, you've got your 60, your 40, or maybe your 60 and your 38, and then you throw this two into this high-octane stuff that's other, and it's all bunched in there. And that's a really poor and unsophisticated way to think about what I believe is more of a continuum. Equity is equity, debt is debt. You've got to manage your liquidity. So I'm not suggesting that private equity and public equity are identical, but really you're getting access to the same risk factors and economic exposures just through different vehicles and different timelines and time horizons, different governance structures. So I think really this has come of age and we should think about diversification across the full spectrum. Some are private, some are alternative public equity, and some are more traditional public equity and fixed income. 
you know, the industry has come a long way um, in, in, in recent times. I saw that Kaya published about two years ago, there was a paper, uh, Portfolio of the Future. Uh, we might go into that a little bit later, but there was a section in there that I found quite interesting where it basically looked back on the previous 15 years in, in how this uh, part of the industry had grown. And it sort of gave a few numbers around uh, um, part of the investable market. And it basically said in 2008, it was still only 6% of the global investable market. And about 10 years later, it had doubled. And I think now we're somewhere between 18 and 24% of the investable industry. Now, in that paper, there, there was a, a sort of an explanation um, that was heavily based on the interest rates, the post-GFC period. But I couldn't help thinking um, the endowment model is, is basically uh, very heavily skewed towards alternatives. It's a model that has been copied many times. Um, to what degree do you think that that is a big part of the growth of alternative assets? Well, Walter, first of all, it's great to have a fan that actually reads our material. So thank you for <laughs> taking a close look. Uh, we do these seminal pieces, these thought leadership pieces, you might call them, every kind of year and a half, two years. And you're right. In each case, we also, just almost regardless of the headline topic, we take a look back at the market sizing. Because as you said, this has really changed and evolved. It's illustrative even to think about Kaya's lifetime as a bit of a symbolic trajectory for how alternatives, again, back to that word, but we'll just use it because it's convenient. Uh, but when we started in 2002, you're right, you cited this, there was only about 5 trillion US of quote alternatives. And nearly all of that is in what we now call hedge funds. It was about 6% back when we first started. Fast forward to about two years ago when we published Portfolio for the Future, that was 12%. So the percentage had doubled, but that represented 18 trillion of assets under management, right? That were now allocated to alternatives. So that had more than tripled the absolute dollar amount. We actually just ran this for a forthcoming piece that hopefully we can talk a little bit about. And at the end of 2022, that number has continued to grow. It's now 15% of the 150 trillion total investable global universe, which means it sits at about 22 trillion. So this continues to move despite the strong public equity trajectory. This is outpaced even that uh, and continues to take a bigger and bigger piece of pie. Now, to your point on why, yes, the endowment model has, I think, entered our psyche. And I think the illiquidity premium, this idea of accessing uh, maybe uh, strategies and managers that really can, through operational transformation and financial engineering, really take advantage of owning some of these companies and wringing out more value. I would say, however, that the biggest contributor to this is simply that in the last 20 years, what used to happen in the IPOs, meaning going public at an early stage of a company's lifetime, and then pursuing capital raising and enterprise value expansion in the public markets is now happening in the private markets. Capital formation has shifted almost entirely over the last 20 years. IPOs have really dried up on a relative basis, uh, and publicly traded equities have more than halved across the world. And so what you're seeing is, and the way I like to think about private equity as an attractive part of your portfolio, is if you want access to over 80% of the global economy of companies, you're going to have to pursue uh, beta and exposure 
in the private markets, because that's just where most of them exist now. And I think maybe to, to underscore this point even more, the new economy, you know, when you think of the Ubers and the Amazons uh, and, and some of these higher tech AI companies, right, the future uh, segments that seem to be expanding, those are exploiting the private markets even longer than some of the previous generations. So I think that's probably the biggest contributor is that we've now got this ecosystem that allows you to stay private longer or even permanently now that investors want to take advantage of. What is then the role of the external macro climate? So I think this report, which was actually the, the report, the next decade of alternative investments uh, um, from two years ago, but that, that gives a lot of credit to sort of the, the interest rate environment and the impact it had on the traditional balanced 60-40 portfolio that many pension funds had. And suddenly that that 40% didn't really start working anymore. So they, they had to look for a different form of uh, return driver, but also of diversification. Um, what role do you think that that played in, in, in um, the rise of alternatives, the interest rates? I do think it played a role because look, the, the early stages, the first generation of what we now call private equity relied heavily on, I used this phrase a few moments ago, financial engineering or or heavy gearing, heavy leverage that they would place on the balance sheet and pop as you started to see revenue growth happen. But Walter, as as probably most of your listeners know, that that's not the typical path anymore. And uh, the smarter asset allocators are not willing to pay up for that type of financial engineering. What they're looking for is true operational transformation, the ability to actually uh, uh, change management or open new distribution opportunities or expand their product opportunity uh, or their or their total addressable market. And, and these venture capital and growth and buyout uh, capabilities uh, in these managers are now just true and tested. And so I think I think going forward, the the, the attraction and the, the narrative is much more around the governance model, which I think on balance, obviously this differs case by case, but I think on balance, the private model is a better governance model. It's superior in the sense that it's more aligned with long-term enterprise value creation rather than the whims and the roller coasters and the emotions of the public markets. And that distraction disruption that can get in the heads of public leaders and public boards, I think you can put that aside and say, look, we've got five to 10 years, which is your kind of typical J-curve exit uh, duration, to really transform this business before we think about an IPO or a strategic sale, et cetera. Uh, and let's really get our hands dirty and make this better. So I think that's the most compelling part of a, a private governance model. That that shift um, in, in sort of the, the greater focus on governance, um, on having proper systems in place. What sort of impact do you think that has on on new firms starting today? Um, and I was sort of thinking of an example that I saw in Australia, where it, it was a, a a hedge fund that had set up, and and they basically said, you know. Before we could even start trading, we spent millions on just putting infrastructure and governance in place. And um, they came out of a previous hedge fund, so they, they, they were all right with that. But it, it sort of gave me the idea it's much harder to start an alternative firm today than it perhaps was 10 years ago. I think so. And I think uh, that's the case for hedge funds. That's the case for private equity. Uh, I, I think in the case of hedge funds, the access to data, uh, the access to networks, um, the the algorithm and quantitative 
robust machinery that's put in place over cycles, at least many years, if not cycles, makes it uh, makes those barriers to entry really high. And then on the private equity side, the venture capital side, like the I alluded to this earlier, the network of really strong operators that many of these venture capitalists and growth uh, GPs have access to that they'll insert and kind of move around these free agents. Um, the the uh, kind of file folder of great marketing and expanding TAMs and understanding how uh, narratives and brand works. Like this is not something you kind of just wake up to. Uh, and, and I think maybe the biggest thing is that because of the power law, meaning uh, most of the value is moving towards those GPs that have shown uh, a a real durability in their ability to 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 really generate returns for both the founders and themselves and their investors uh, is that ultimately these founders are choosing the GPs. Uh, they are gravitating towards those that have the best track record. So for all of these reasons, it's just a huge headwind for you and I, Wouter, one day to wake up and say, you know, I've got a great idea for a new venture capital firm. And, and what is our story going to be to all these founders that want to go to Andreessen or Sequoia uh, or some of the big uh, reputable names? That's just, it's a tall order. Yeah, for sure. So do you think that also their focus um, of, of many alternative firms have changed over time? And I was thinking of, you mentioned that sort of early days, high octane type of strategies, but I think what we see in sort of the asset-owned portfolios tend to be a lot more defensive type of alternatives. Um, is, is that sort of reflective of the industry? Well, I think certainly, uh, I don't know that we've seen a shift, but we've seen, uh, I would say, a greater scope of types of private GPs and the business models they're pursuing. So I, I think when we thought about private equity, particularly VC coming out of the GFC, when this really was exploding... It was very high gross margin, high leverage businesses. So think of the SaaS model, right? Or think of new technologies, social media technology, uh, network effect businesses like Uber, right? That you could scale very quickly through the use of software and technology. And as network effect definition goes, the increase of one customer makes the entire network ever more valuable, right? What I've seen more recently is that the need for diversification, particularly in this new world or new era where capital market returns, I think we all agree are going to be a little bit more elusive, maybe a little less easy to come by, is really seeking out uncorrelated cash flows. And that could come through businesses that are a little bit more durable in their cash flow generation or a little bit less aligned or correlated with the general economic cycle. And so back to kind of um, you know black and white and and maybe plain vanilla businesses that are selling machinery or are selling you know consumer products that are not driven by the economy so plumbing and contractor work and 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 those types of businesses that I think are just going to be a little bit more resilient through a cycle a little bit stickier uh, I, I've I've heard anecdotally about just a lot of private equity firms standing up either lines of business launching new funds or even new GPs associated with maybe what we would have called uh, you know, less sexy businesses only a few years ago. So I mentioned a bit earlier already the, uh, the concept of the portfolio of the future. It's something that Kaya has been working on and, and promoting. What's wrong with portfolios today? <laughs> yes, it, it wasn't so much there was anything wrong with portfolios today. You know, it's funny, Kaya um, 
it's never been in the business, which are of market timing. In fact, we would teach against whether anybody really has the ability to market time. But for whatever reason, we literally dropped this sequel paper. You mentioned the 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 first paper, uh, The Future of Alternatives, that was about a year and a half, two years before Portfolio for the Future. And we dropped Portfolio of the Future uh, in March of, of 2022. So just put that in perspective, thinking of your short-term memory about what happened to the markets shortly after this. Again, we take zero credit for our ability <laughs> to time that right. But to your question, it wasn't so much what was wrong uh, with portfolios that inspired us to write this piece, but we were burdened by the reality that most practitioners, if um, if you're 40 or or under, really, which is probably the majority of folks that are practicing and allocating and analyzing investments, have only operated in an environment of basically, you alluded to it earlier, zero cost of capital, free, free money, non-existent inflation, double-digit annual capital market returns, relatively peaceful geopolitical world to operate in. I mean, it's it's been a nice kind of easy button environment, Goldilocks, you might say. So that pretty smooth sailing since the, if you remember, the hyperinflation and stagflation global environment of the late 70s and 80s has been the water that we kind of a swum in for this last 40-year period. And what we were arguing is that this environment is not normal and it's not permanent. And investment professionals needed to be ready and needed to be thinking about their portfolio positioning for what was likely to be a very different set of conditions, a new epoch, we argued, a new era was was coming. And therefore, portfolio construction needed to meet a new set of headwinds to meet those same investment outcomes going forward. So that's that's what we argued in the portfolio for the future is a, is a different set of eyes and a new construct portfolio. Yeah. Now, that, that uh, thinking has um, five pillars to it, I believe. Now, we're not going to go through all of them because I think a lot of them are sort of common practice um, in, in the industry that, that can be fine-tuned. But there was one that I thought was particularly interesting, and I was talking about operational alpha. I think that is something, uh, I think it quotes Ashby Monk in the, in the paper uh, talking about that. I know he has done a lot of uh, work in this area. But can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what is exactly operational alpha and how do you implement it best? Yeah, I tease Ashby all the time. He is a rock star down under, uh, but he's been he's been a good friend and a, and a great thought leader for Kaya for a long time. Uh, we've done a lot of work together, but this work really centered around what we would have jointly called and would still call the best kept secret in investing. And the source for, I would argue, a much more durable and persistent type of alpha, operational alpha is what we called it. So of course, our industry spends a ton of time on investment alpha, you know, outsized returns over a benchmark or over a, a beta or an average or a mean. But in today's competitive and efficient market where data is ubiquitous everywhere, it's it's really hard. This is to your question earlier about starting up a new fun now. It's really hard to claim you've got a sustainable long-term edge in, in either information or competency set anymore. It's not impossible, but it's extremely difficult. But there are sources of alpha, we think, that cannot be competed out and are very hard to replicate. And those are some of the softer elements that our industry, quite frankly, hasn't done a great job of really focusing on historically. And those are things like healthy governance. We talked a little bit about that innovative technology and high performance cultures. And what Ashby and we were arguing is that spending a lot more time as leaders trying to build up sustainable, protective, uh, real 
evidence um, that will support a, a, a durable investment process will lead to outsized returns in themselves. Uh, and so we've spent a lot of time, even since this paper, starting to think through the pieces of how to do that. But I, I remain convinced that the industry has a whole lot of what you might call dry powder available to it for high performance if we were to pursue these things like other industries do. Yeah, I remember I spoke to to Ashby a couple of months ago about knowledge management, and we, we initially explored it when he wrote an original paper on it, and you know the the importance of keeping the knowledge within the organization and not having like you know have it sit with some rock star manager and then they leave and it's all gone, but to have a proper proper system in place, and I, I sort of asked him to revisit that with the rise of ChatGPT. Because there was this example where Morgan Stanley Wealth Management was using it to basically get answers quickly on processes and and all sorts of things that that was basically knowledge within the the organization. So I said to Ashby, "Are we there yet? Is this it? Is this the holy grail of knowledge management?" He says, "Well, it's interesting. There's just one problem. It lies." <laughs> and then <laughs> he gave me this illustration of how he put in his own biographical information in it and said, "Write me a resume." And it came back with books that he never written that actually didn't exist, but it all sounded plausible, right? So, um, yeah, it's it, it's it's a fascinating area, but but that rise as well of of artificial intelligence and uh, chat GPT is there is, is is one application of it, but that's probably an area where we can also potentially see some more operational alpha uh, coming into organizations. What's your view on that? Absolutely right. I don't like these quips or these sound bites that data is the new oil because there's major differences here that we just need to point out. First of all, data is not scarce. I use the word ubiquitous. Oil is valuable because it's scarce, or at least it's really hard to find where that scarce resource might be. And the second thing, unlike oil, which has value in itself, with data, you need to interpret. And there needs to be human insights on, on top of it to make sure, to Ashley's point, it's not lying or it's uh, naive or it, it it's not connecting the dots that it should. So I, I just want to I just want to punctuate what Ashby said. Uh, look, I'm a big believer in the broadest sense in this revolutionary movement towards harnessing the power of data. So the short answer is yes, but I I think there's there might be a, as we always do when we get a little bit ahead of ourselves, we've overbought. The hype a little bit. I, I think these generative AI models have shown to be tremendously cool, exciting, beneficial in a consumer environment. And what, I'll, what I'm watching closely is how kind of the infrastructure commercial players like NVIDIA and OpenAI, when will this kind of create some use cases that are really going to benefit, again, back to Ashby's point, organizations, investment uh, strategies uh, so that they can actually uh, interpret and then use and put into action these insights. And I, I don't think we've quite solved for that yet. And, and the only other thing I'd say, you know, this word lie, uh, Ashby was using it in a different context, but the ethics of this is critically important. And I don't think it's talked about as much. I mean, obviously, if you followed the open AI thing, at least the way the media reported the circus that happened in the boardroom was a disagreement about, you know, do we need to govern this a little bit more, or slow down? Is this right? Is it ethical? Is it moral? Uh, we need to have adults in the room working closely with the larger tech industry and regulators to ensure that intellectual property, individual human rights, reputations, hard work is all protected. 
Uh, and that's that's the case with any new technology, but it has a particularly acute danger, I think, with uh, artificial intelligence. Yeah. With artificial intelligence, do you think that this is another super cycle uh, about to happen? And and part of the reason is the portfolio of the future uh, a framework. It, it makes a reference to super cycles um, over the years, how technological innovation can sometimes just create this burst of economic activity. Um, it, it gave like paper as an example. I think uh, printing press was, is another one. Is AI the start of a super cycle? I think it could be, and maybe maybe I'll take that further, is likely to be the next technological super cycle. So obviously the internet in the early 2000s, mobile internet uh, in the late 90s, uh, and then, or in the, in the late zero zeros, you would say. And then of course, kind of this editorial um, development cycle that resulted in things like social media and blogs and so forth that 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 has been kind of the last i would argue in kind of this super cycle next generation technologies and i think we've been waiting for maybe 10 to 15 years on what the next one is we thought maybe it was blockchain and that could be part of this story too uh it doesn't have to be either or but i i think there's a few technologies that are currently in their early incubation stage as i said earlier we need to be be careful because at this stage of the game and the cycle, right, there's a whole lot more creative destruction that's going to happen in the near term than real value. And so you got to be careful in how you want to play this. I, I I always tell the story of uh, when I was first an analyst, I, I told you about my State Street Global opportunity um, and my role as an analyst. And of course, a 23-year-old that had only known up and to the right and a bull market and multiples that made no sense on zero revenue, right? It was all about clicks and eyeballs. And I remember going to these IPO lunches of of eToys and and Webvan and, and these internet companies that had no real business model. Uh, and I just remember thinking like, there's a real opportunity in hindsight when I look back that all of those business models made sense, but those were not the ones that were going to bring it to fruition. And 95% of those companies died. Yeah. And yet, eventually, the technology sustained itself and became hugely powerful to human innovation and human life. I think the same thing will happen. Who the winners are, it's just way too early to determine how we're going to use this stuff quite yet. Yeah. And if we look at it, uh, its application in the investment industry, I think there is an interesting governance questions around this as well. And, and Skya, you know, you put a lot of uh, emphasis on, on, on governance. Because some of the applications in investing are most interesting where it looks at nonlinear patterns. And it's, you know, it's, it's much harder for the human mind to, to wrap their mind, their mind around that. But at the same time, it makes it much harder to sort of attribute the returns. Where do they come from? Do you, how do you explain this to your board? There's sort of a tension there where there is a potential new area of alpha but it might be unexplainable. What What is your point, your view on on sort of that governance question around AI and its use and investments? Well, I go back to what I said earlier, right? These are uh, where AI is brilliant so far is taking unstructured data sets and and structuring them for interpretation, not interpreting them as, themselves. But uh, so the the you remember the old 
uh, myth that um, that a lot of analysts used to talk about. Well, what I really want to do is is check out the parking lot, the number of cars in the parking lot. You know, they're doing their channel checking, and the great retail analysts were literally driving by the WalMarts and determining what the crowds were. Well, imagine what you could do with uh, large data sets and a really powerful server and processing power to determine like consumer credit card data, right? That That's a lot more closer to the actual transaction than the subjective view of how full the parking lot is, right? Uh, and the predictive analytics is, is another one that I think could be fantastic. Uh, Ashby talks a lot about the benefit of, of, of some of these tools to make what was just a proliferation of mess and muck something that's readable. To your point on governance, though, all this has to all this has to be managed, and there has got to be policies, procedures, and guardrails around this. So, is it okay uh, that that actually my memo on a certain manager that goes to the investment committee was written by Chat GPT? I don't know the answer to that. It certainly better have been manipulated and edited and checked over by the individual. Um, and and so I think we just need to be careful by kind of outsourcing. And I don't think anybody is really considering this just yet, but fully outsourcing the development of certain important fiduciary responsibilities to the machine quite yet. Um, but it certainly can give you a, a great head start and maybe make efficient some parts of the process that were not great uses of time and can be um, repositioned uh, for for you know really higher thinking and higher order type of activities. Yeah. Now talking about governance, um, I saw a piece that you recently did where you sort of um, riled against the use of ESG and said we should pull this apart. This, this should be not one concept. Can you explain it a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I know. I want to be careful and make sure that uh, that uh, you know the the clickbait title isn't misunderstood. Because let me just say without without any asterisk or disclaimer, I'm a huge believer in the underlying factors that represent the E, the S, and the G, which is why the title of that piece was uh, Death to ESG, Long Live E, S, and G, right? And so my argument, Wouter, is that the ironically, this ESG catch-all that's been around almost 20 years now, it's ironically, I believe, become the biggest impediment for advancement for this movement. And, and it's enabled a whole lot of political football because we created a thing we we mashed it all up, we made it a, a an overlay, and we said, "Is this good or bad?" And that's the debate that we're having, and it's been it's it, it's been really destructive, I think. So my argument was, if we're attempting to measure everything with this big leviathan, then we're actually measuring nothing. So there are material risks and opportunities that I think need to be integrated into the investment process. So when you're analyzing, when you're doing your DCF, uh, or your multiple analysis on a company. If you're valuing uh, a a piece of real estate, an actual hard real asset, if you're evaluating a manager, all these things should be incorporated as with other elements uh, that you would consider uh, in, in, in that input and in that process. So yeah, I argued strong. There's There's not an ESG investment strategy or a single score, but as I said earlier with the AI, discussion. There's just a lot of unstructured ESG data sets that we just need to harvest and apply when we're assessing these things. And often is the case, uh, the last thing I'll say is the mashup, this kind of Frankenstein of a whole bunch of stuff, 
not only is it sometimes unrelated, but sometimes they work against each other. And so how do these different rating systems, uniform scoring uh, that uh, has become in high demand and is is dialogued about a, a lot, how do you amalgamate and summarize that? When they're actually working against each other, how do you prioritize what's more important? Should these two factors even be in the same conversation in some cases? So I just think we need to disaggregate, disentangle, and and identify the factors that are most important to the client and make them a priority as we would anything else in the investment process. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because I I can think of uh, the energy transition where obviously it's it's um, it's it's a very important that we have this transition, but at the same time there's a lot of discussion on the S side of it. How do you do a just transition? And sometimes those things not necessarily match up easily, even though they're both important aspects. That's absolutely right. Yeah. If if uh, if one of the big oil majors, let's just say, is going to kill one of their brown oil rigs uh, or projects from a clean energy and new energy perspective and their carbon footprint perspective in these scores, they're rating pretty high. What about all the employees you just laid off? Yeah, from an S perspective, you're going to rate pretty low. That's not a, exactly a great employee sustainability strategy to start laying people off. That's just one example. And that's okay, right? Those are those are decisions and trade-offs that any executive has had to make for the entirety of capitalism. That's completely fine. And 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 those are trade-offs, uh, as I said. But But to suggest that we can suddenly put those together and average them out and make interpretations in a way that creates a, a median that doesn't really tell you anything is where I have an issue. Yeah, yeah, fair point. So we might f uh, finish up with a, a bit of a rumor. Um, I think uh, <laughs> you might be working on something uh, related to total portfolio approach. Is that right? We are. We are. Wow, it's nice to know down in Australia, the uh, the, the, the rumor is getting around. Um no, I'm kidding. We are excited that we are moving towards yet another seminal report. I mentioned that we do these every year and a half, two years, and Portfolio for the Future was the last one. And uh, a it, this all started actually in Singapore. Just to tell you a little story, I was having a coffee in Singapore with the head of asset allocation for GIC. And we had this very rich uh, and exciting discussion about the way they were thinking about total portfolio approach versus the traditional asset classes. And and look, Walter, I think the whole industry globally is struggling with this fact that since the arrival of modern portfolio theory in the 50s, there's all these trappings and 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 uh, mechanisms that really anchor us to this philosophy. So strategic asset allocation and mean variance optimization and benchmarking and our, and by the way, our organizational charts and compensation structures and academic work, like even Kai and CFA, like we all perpetuate this worldview. And, and there's chatter and dialogue starting to go on that is challenging some of the inherent weaknesses of SAA. It's not that it's worked poorly. It's just that there we have to recognize that silo behavior and unhealthy competition for resources, when you over bucket and you over silo, or there's maybe unrecognized duplication or disjointed risk exposure, because it all kind of bubbles up from these asset class teams. And you don't have a really good sense as to how you're truly positioned. So back to this coffee in Singapore, uh, there's a few enterprising 
asset owners around the world, literally you could count these on a hand or two that are that are really pushing this idea of an alternative approach, total portfolio approach for GIC is one of them. Future Fund right there in Australia is another, New Zealand Super, CPP in Toronto. It's not that others aren't doing it at all, but I would say these four are really leading the charge and being most vocal and courageous about it. And so we we took a little bit of a global tour and talked to all these folks, thanks to that uh, those introductions from GIC. Um, and then we sat back and we said, "What is is Kai have a role in this? You know, we, we clearly see this as a movement. This could be the next uh, sort of era, to use my earlier word, uh, of portfolio construction. What's our role here?" And, and I sat back and and I said, "You know, Kai has been in the business of being kind of on the on the bleeding edge." helping allocators and investment professionals look around the corner at what's coming and bringing to life what's going to go you know be coming down the pike and and what formative strategies and challenges are going to be haunting them 5 years from now not just today and we said i think our convening power can really help this dialogue uh to my earlier point and so we went back to those four and we said would you be willing to be co-authors and kind of go on a journey with us and tell this story globally uh, and teach others. And we looped in WTW, the big consultant, because I found out through their research that they had been kind of on the very early first floor in conversations with Australia and New Zealand when these funds first kind of stood up their total portfolio approach. So all that to say is we will be launching, which we'll are unveiling uh, under great fanfare globally, uh, <laughs> March March 19th, I'm sure, a lot of media and press uh, coverage and global kind of content amplification. We'll be launching this new piece uh, from our big Alts LA event uh, in Los Angeles, California uh, on March 19th. So I, I hope listeners take a look and watch out for that because I, I really do believe this will, this will be a very healthy and beneficial piece and set of instructions uh, and a practical guide to even how to think about this uh, because I think it's coming. It's not for everybody right now, and it's not like the endowment model. It's not a kind of a yes or no, a plug-in, and then you're done. It is a range of approaches and elements that I think is a little bit more nuanced, but um, we're happy to be at the center of this conversation. Yeah, I think um, GRC has an interesting approach to total portfolio. Um, we, we did a couple of years ago an interview with Chum, and he, he was very generous in sharing some of his insights there as well. And and here in Australia, of course, we have a couple organizations. You mentioned Future Fund, T Corp is part of that. Now, I won't pry too much because I know the report is not published yet, but maybe I can sort of ask a, a philosophical question on TPA. I, I think one of the key aspects of TPA is asking investment professionals to to not just think about their own asset class, but how the investments that are considering fit within the broader framework, how it changes the risk profile and, and how it interacts with other assets. From your perspective as Kaya, does that sort of led to a rethinking of, of perhaps some of the, the, the educational and professional development pieces that you have out there on the role of portfolio managers? Uh, I, I wholeheartedly say yes yeah uh i mean in the in the near term Walter, we will be not only publishing this thought leadership piece publicly we'll be adding this to the kaya curriculum uh next year but i think you know that that is kind of an add-on uh an additional thread 
uh, an additional option or alternative. But I think we're going to step back and say, what does this mean for the way that we've taught? And I say we, the broadest church, when I say that. As I said, we're all part of perpetuating strategic asset allocation and asset class buckets, right? So how do we step back and say, is is MPT still the right way to think about this? And and uh, assigning basically allocations of percentages to an asset class team, having them fill up that bucket and then bring it back to us, tell us what they filled it with, and then we kind of mash it up all together and there's our total portfolio. You know, I, I realize when I say it that way, which is partly unfair, it, it exposes kind of how silly uh, that kind of is as far as achieving a total portfolio outcome. So I think it has to start in a very different place rather than bottom up. It has to start at the top, at, which is why we start with governance in the paper. And now I am kind of peeling back the onion a little bit here, giving you a peek behind the curtain. We start with governance and it's got to be that the governance is focused on the investment outcome. What is the actual goal? What's your risk budget and what's the total return goal? And then let's empower the CIO office to really fill up that 100%, not just each little portion in in silos across the organization, but let's actually construct in, in a very competitive uh, environment for the marginal dollar, a set of strategies or assets or, or managers that we think will optimize our ability to get to that total goal. And I think, well, in some sense, it sounds much simpler because I think the process kind of is. I think there's also lots of challenges uh, that these authors and asinors do a really good job of outlining. You know, how do you get, how do you change culture and compensation and governance and motivation? Uh, how do you, how does the investment process work when a distressed real estate strategy is is quote competing against a long only small cap portfolio, right? That's a very different way. And what does that conversation look like? And how do you really make the determination? Is there still is there a is there a wish list? And how do you how do you get on the wish list? How do we move things off the wish list? Uh, so I wouldn't want to suggest, while at the headline level, it sounds simpler and alleviates a lot of the biases and the the mistakes I think MPT can lead you into. Uh, there's still a lot of work. Um, within the kind of the structure and the culture of the organization to really make this home. And I, I would say right there in, uh, in Melbourne and Sydney is really a, a signature example. Future Fund was kind of born this way, as we say. So I think they have a really pure insight in how to do this well, because they're not unlike GIC and CPP and most other funds around the world that are experimenting with this, Wilter. They're not having to transition. They stood it up. They created it that way. And so it's a really interesting case study. Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, I'll certainly keep my eye out for that uh, report. Uh, but John, it was great talking to you today. And thank you very much for your time. Well, it's funny, those TPA discussions, uh, your episodes with T Corp, and with Future Fund, and with some of the others with with Chum at GIC, have been really inspiring for this paper. So you guys should take some credit for uh, for this process and this journey. So thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much for that, John. Much appreciated. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.